Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 27, Liberty Gold. Thanks for listening. It's true, we're talking about gold today, and some people love gold, some people really, really, really love gold to the point where they quit their day job and they go up and make it a full-time occupation. And there still are a few of those cats uh, pretty close to Ellensburg uh, who are making a living prospecting for gold. So we're heading there, I promise. But before we get there, uh, I'd like to talk about some general geology layers that we have not yet talked about here in central Washington that really set the stage for why we have gold in this area. And I'll preface all of this by saying that up until a few years ago, I knew nothing about the Liberty Gold deposits. I couldn't find much online or in the library In other words, there just wasn't much written about Liberty Gold, and there's a reason for that, of course. If you're a prospector, you keep your mouth shut. You don't don't spread the word. You don't share with what uh, what you've learned uh, because uh, it's high-stakes poker up there, basically. And also, you're not exactly welcome to just show up and and start wandering around. So as a result of that, uh, for probably 20 years, Here's this gold mining district uh, half an hour from town, and uh, when somebody asks about it, I go, I don't know. I, I have no idea. And, um, and it stayed that way until about five years ago. Many of you know that I, I teach Geology 101 regularly, and I'm, I'm quite vocal about opening it up to the public for free. And people drop in occasionally just here and there, and some people take the whole class. Mostly retired folks, of course. They just join the paying customers, the 21-year-old kids or the 19-year-old kids who are enrolled here in school. But I got a phone call, I don't know, five years ago now maybe, kind of over Christmas time from a guy named Rob Reppin. And he said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a gold miner up here. I'm about your age. I'm in my 50s. And uh, I'd like to learn some basic geology so that I can help me kind of prospect uh, uh, my claims up here. And I heard you're offering this class for free. Is that true? And I said, well, yeah, yes, sir, it is. So he drove down, drove out of the hills every morning, sat in class, took his notes with everybody else, got to know a few of the kids. Kind of a gruff-looking character. Um, And uh, as the quarter went on, I learned more and more from him, just casually chatting in my office after class or something like that. And um, he took the exams and everything. He wasn't a registered student, but uh, it was great to have him in there. And he was smart. And at the end of the class, uh, he said, as a thank you, I'd like to take, give you a little tour of my operation up there. And so one thing led to another, and I ended up learning a lot uh, after visiting up there a number of times, uh, both his hard rock gold deposits and his placer operation. And... Not only did I learn from Rob, but then kind of word spread up there in the Liberty area. Well, this, 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 this college teacher, uh, is, he's okay. And uh, so I kind of got in to the club, basically, up there, an honorary member. I've never found any gold, but uh, um, I'm a trusted person now. And so it's been fun to meet a number of the folks up there um, with claims, and uh, they have offered to... Uh, show me around. So I've learned a fair amount that way. And uh, this works not only for Liberty Gold, but it works for something called Ellensburg Blue Agates, which will be the topic of the next episode. 
So first major point, not much of this is written down, but I've learned enough directly from some of these folks up in the Liberty area uh, to be able to um, make a couple programs online, some hour-long lectures, uh, some short uh, uh, TV episodes, and, and now this little ep- episode of, uh, of the podcast. Without further ado, let's get into it. I'm turning to a diagram that I use in the 101 class. As a reminder for myself, let me, let me kind of screw around here. Hang on. Um, and it's basically a, uh, a geologic cross-section. We remember what that is, right? Geologic maps look down from heaven, uh, but geologic cross-sections are side views or profiles or underground geology diagrams. And this is a classic uh, cross-section that I, I copied from Jack Powell, who was a longtime geologist here in the valley. Uh, retired now, but uh, uh, d- did a great thing. He created a, a, a wonderful geologic cross-section to go from Mount Stewart, we've already talked about Mount Stewart, to Ellensburg, Central Washington University. And there's a number of geologic rock layers that uh, are coming to the surface between Mount Stewart and Ellensburg. Um, I can just do it quickly for you verbally. Uh, Mount Stewart, of course, is made out of 93-million-year-old granite. There's 150-million-year-old serpentinite. There's a uh, 10-million-year stretch of sands and muds uh, that became sandstones and shales. There's a basaltic unit. There's more sandstones and shales. There's big old fat flood basalts that we've talked about earlier. And then our our Kittitas Valley has got some river cobbles inside. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, there's a lot of interesting geology in the, the uh, what is it, as the crow flies, maybe uh, 30 miles from Ellensburg to Mount Stewart. There's a lot of different rock layers exposed, and many of them are quite local. In other words, they're not exposed across the state. Uh, they may exist across the state, but they've been buried by um, younger things. And one of these particular layers is the key to understanding why we have gold. And I'll cut right to the chase. The key layer is called the Tianaway Basalt. The Tianaway Basalt. The Tianaway Formation, technically. It's more than basalt. Uh, but I don't understand the rhyolite part of it, so we're going to ignore the rhyolite of the Tianaway. Okay? So the Tianaway Basalt is um, uh, 51 to 49 million years old. And we are going to realize that without that Tianaway basalt, we would not have Liberty Gold. So that's where we're headed. But let's, let's, let's uh, talk a little bit more about a couple of those layers that we have not discussed so far. So if you go back to the previous couple of episodes, we were talking about those exotic terrains. Do you remember these pieces of land that were c- created elsewhere? Whether elsewhere means the Pacific Ocean or whether elsewhere means Mexico... Go back a couple episodes if that doesn't make any sense to you. But the point is, by, by uh, 60 million years ago, these terrains are here. So the Mount Stewart granite, the 150-million-year-old serpentinite, that's got this long exotic history, but we don't care now. It's here. It's here. We've, we've got some Washington. We've got some real estate here. And between 59 and 49 million years ago, for a 10-million-year stretch, Washington was flat. And we know it was flat because we have rivers coming from the ancestral Rocky Mountains, and those rivers are bringing sand and clay and silt, 
and they are just regularly dumping that sand and let's just say sand and mud, sand and mud. They're dumping that sand and mud in central Washington. And so we have kind of this passive scene where it's flat, it's it's drained. There's some rivers that are getting to the coast, but for the most part, we, we have a um, uh, in many places, kind of a swampy, boggy, occasionally well-drained scene. But the point is we're depositing an incredible amount of sand and mud in central Washington. Locally, that's called the Swak Formation. And if you go over to western Washington, it's called the Chuckanut Formation. And there's a bunch of other little local names. But basically, the message is we have thousands and thousands of vertical feet of this sand and mud being deposited locally here, with the sand and mud coming from the east, uh, northeast to, pre- uh, to be precise. Okay, um, it was also a very different climatic time. There's lots of wonderful plant fossils that we can find in those sands and muds in particular. So those rocks today are sandstones and shales, sandstones and shales of the Swak and the Chuckanut formations. And if you're familiar with those layers, you know that it's not just a bunch of kind of delicate leaves that are pressed into the mud and the sand. Um, there's leaves of palm fronds, huge dinner plate and even bigger palm leaves. And if we really start thinking about that, what does that mean? That means that central Washington had a much different climate. It was hot and humid here in central Washington during the Swak Formation time, between 59 and 49 million years ago. We're heading to the gold. Don't be impatient, please. Uh, But I'd like to to dwell on that hot and humid condition business. If you really start thinking about that, it becomes confusing. Like, why was it so hot and humid here? And I think there's kind of three ideas out there. Only one of them is correct. So the first idea that I've, I've heard from many people, especially if you're up with a group that's kind of digging for plant fossils and they're having a great old time and they're talking about these palm fronds and they'll say, somebody will say, uh, uh, oh, I wonder why it was so uh, hot and humid here. And somebody will say, well, the Cascades didn't exist yet. And we had all this moisture coming in off of the Pacific And uh, it was hot and humid because we didn't have the rain shadow effect. And that's true. The Cascades were not built yet during this 59 to 49 million year time. There were no Cascades. There were no major mountains. So that explains the humidity, the maritime conditions, but it does not explain the heat. We need heat. We need hot and humid conditions. And just to say that the Cascades weren't here yet is is not the answer. And then maybe it's a really a deep-thinking plant fossil group, and maybe somebody else will say, well, I heard that, uh, that Washington used to be down by the equator, like continental drift and, and Pangaea and all that. So that's a decent statement to make. And it is true that North America at times in our geologic past was at a lower latitude, in fact, did straddle the equator, during Pangaea time, for instance, North America, much of North America was, was straddling the equator. But how about during this special time we're talking about, which is 59 to 49 million years ago? Was central Washington at the equator? And the answer is no. Actually, actually, like some sort of know-it-all, actually, central Washington was closer to the North Pole 59 to 49 million years ago 
than it is now. It wasn't at the North Pole, but what I'm saying is, instead of explaining these tropical plant fossils in our rock, in the Swak Formation, instead of saying North America was closer to the equator, it was actually farther from the equator than it is today. Okay, well, so I guess that didn't work, did it? It turns out if you look, so what is the answer? The, the, the third option. The third option is uh, our entire planet was much hotter 59 to 49 million years ago. And that's a discussion for another day, why it was so hot and humid worldwide. But we have palm fronds. We have plant fossils that are tropical in nature, even up in Alaska during this time. So it's not because we were at a different latitude. It's not because of the Cascades not existent yet. It's because of a global hot and humid scene. And the Earth has not been as hot and humid since that time. We're heading there again, by the way, but we don't need to go there, do we? Okay, so these beautiful palm fronds are the kind of headline, but there's lots of other kinds of interesting and, and uh, intricate and delicate plant fossils in this walk formation. This is all setting the stage for our gold. But to say gold, we're really saying what? The Tianome, excuse me, the Tianaway volcanism. So let me make it as dramatic as I can. About 51 million years ago, right in the middle of all this sandstone and shale in central Washington, hot and humid conditions, a bunch of cracks open up, deep cracks. That's bad enough, but the cracks are actually going to start belching out lava. Do you remember our flood basalt lecture or episode? where we had these massive amounts of basalt coming out of the cracks down in southeastern Washington and northeastern Oregon. That happened 16 million years ago. We're way older than that now. We're 51 to 49 million years ago, and we're going to have a more local version of this flood basalt scene. And what I mean is, in the middle of our Swak formation and our Chuckanut formation, Actually, that's wrong. Just the, just the Swak formation. We're going to develop all these cracks, and the cracks are going to open up like a cartoon, and all this Hawaiian-like lava is going to come out of the cracks, and it's going to bury our swamp. It's going to bury our, you know, Charleston, South Carolina, um, swamp cypress kind of a scene. We're going to bury it completely in lava. And underground, those cracks are going to be filled with basalt, and when everything cools and hardens off, we are left with basaltic feeder dikes that fed, once upon a time when they were active, these surface lava flows that buried this swalk swamp, if you want to think of it that way. Oh, that's cute. I've never said that before. Swalk swamp. All right, that was underwhelming, you say. Who cares? Well, here's why we should care. That was an event that sets the stage for our gold deposition and our Ellensburg blue agates. If it wasn't for that swank event, swank, <laughs> if it wasn't for that swank, goodness. We need this freak volcanic event to get the gold and the blue agates. If we didn't have that, that freak event, we would not have the gold and the blue agates. 
So the rest of this episode will be talking about what we know about the gold and what we don't know about the gold, but it's all tied to this Tianaway event. By the way, why did those cracks open up? That was a mystery for quite a while. We now have a good feel for that. There's been some interesting work done in the last five to seven years. Do you remember, I don't know how old you are, but uh, I used to work at a service station. That's how old I am. A gasoline station back in Wisconsin. Uh, but it was self-serve. And I just sat in this little, you know, uh, air-conditioned little uh, glassed-in uh, prison cell, basically, and I just, uh, everybody just paid in cash, so they came up to my little window and, and paid their 10 bucks or whatever, and if you're old enough, you remember that there was a skill to, like, work that uh, nozzle, right, to just get it right up to 10 and not go over, and I was the cool guy, right, if it was 10.03, I'd go, ah, don't worry about it, just give me the $10, oh, I like you, man, I like you, teenager, Anyway, I have a I have a vivid memory of a bunch of these old timers coming up to my little window paying for their gas and they didn't have the quick trigger with the gas nozzle and so it would be 10:32 and they would reach into their pocket and pull out a coin purse. Do you know what I'm talking about? A coin purse? The old ones, I haven't been able to find an old one, but uh, maybe maybe I'll be able to find it in a thrift shop or something. The old ones were this real kind of uh, durable, like thick rubber, usually like a maroon color or something, and, you, and then a bunch of lint on it and everything else. But the idea is with a coin purse, there's coins inside of the purse, but it's this kind of this oval, uh, thick rubber. And what you do with the coin purse, I'm doing it with my fingers right now as I'm trying to describe this, you pinch the coin purse on two sides like your pointer and your thumb, you kind of squeeze those together. And as you squeeze, the slot on the coin purse opens up like a drawbridge. So you're squeezing on two sides of the coin purse, and the opposite two sides are actually opening up like a drawbridge. So you can get in and get your quarter and get your pennies and everything else. God, that feels like a long time ago. Coin purses, wow. Well, I mention it because these cracks are opening up kind of like a drawbridge. You're pry barring the crust open. Those sandstones and shales with all the plant fossils, we're going to crack that bedrock and we're going to open it. And here comes all this lava. So the question is, why did those cracks form and why did they open up? There is a tectonic answer. Remember Silesia? This is a couple episodes ago. Silesia was that huge Icelandic shield volcano that was offshore, and it's the last of the exotic terrains to add to the edge of western Washington. Well, that slow-motion accretion or addition of Silesia was compressing the crust northeast-southwest. In other words, Silesia came in from the southwest, so we're squeezing the crust northeast-southwest. Those are the two fingers that are squeezing the coin purse. And if you're still with me for some miracle reason, as we squeeze Washington 51 to 49 million years ago, northeast squeeze, southwest squeeze, those are the two areas that we're pinching. I'm doing it again with my fingers right now. As we squeeze, the cracks are going to form northeast, southwest, but they're going to open up 
to the northwest and the southeast. All I tried to say there was that all of these feeder dikes, these cracks that are now filled with basaltic lava 51 to 49 million years ago, those cracks, those feeder dikes are oriented northeast-southwest. And that's because the squeezing came in northeast-southwest and the extension was perpendicular to that, northwest-southeast. Oh my God, how are we going to do that without a coin purse? How are we going to do that without a chalkboard? How are we going to do that without an animation? Well, I think we just tried it. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Enough of that, let's get to the gold. What do we know? Well, we know that there are two different forms of gold in the Liberty area. Surprisingly, there's two completely different deposits. In the hills above Liberty, in select spots, there is very fragile crystalline wire gold. It's rare to find gold like that. Fragile little slivers and uh, fragments and I guess you just have to uh, Google wire gold and click on images and see what you can find. But I'll bet you some of those photos are from the Liberty District here in, Ellen, in, in central Washington. Well, what I learned from Rob and others up there is that when you go up to those what they call hard rock mines, when you try to mine the actual original crystals of gold, you're going to find them in a very specific spot. First of all, you only find those crystals of wire gold next door to one of these feeder dikes. So that's why I wasted your time with the Tianaway feeder dikes. Again, I mentioned that we wouldn't have the gold without those dikes, and we know that because there is no wire gold uh, out in the middle of nowhere. There's wire gold only found right next door to one of these feeder dikes that was active between 51 and 49 million years ago. The coin purse, right? Well, it gets better than that, or it gets more detailed than that. It's not just in any rock layer next to the feeder dike. It's only found in the black shale. So in the Swak Formation, we had the sandstones and the shales, the sandstones and the shales, lots and lots of layers. Well, there's never any wire gold in the sandstone. The only wire gold that's been found has been found in the black shales, immediately adjacent to one of our vertical basaltic feeder dikes. And then if you drill down even further, you realize that the wire gold is not actually in the black shale, but it's in cracks in the black shale that are filled with calcite, the mineral calcite. So you've got these little delicate calcite veins within the black shale next door to Tianaway feeder dike. It's in the calcite veins that you're finding the fragile wire gold. I'll try to say it again. Actually, no, I won't. This is a podcast. You can rewind and try it again. Um, but that's, I think, quite interesting that you've got this, this um, perfect storm of chemistry. There's, there's a, the, the shale is carbonaceous. You need some carbon uh, involved in the calcite. Um, and I, I'm weak on chemistry, so I'm not going to say much more there. I will say it again very quickly. So where's the wire gold? It, the wire gold are fragile um, crystals of gold within calcite. The calcite is within black 
shale of the swak formation, but the black shale isn't anywhere. It's got to be next to one of these feeder dikes. And I'll add one more. It's got to be in the middle of a fold, an anticline fold. So where the black shale has been arched into an anticline, that also is part of the recipe, apparently. So you'd think there'd be thousands and thousands of gold mines then, but there aren't because we need all those recipes. We need that very specific recipe to get our fragile wire gold. And that's a main reason that the Liberty Gold District is such a localized thing. Okay. It's not just the wire gold, though. And as I understand it, although, again, it's a secretive club, as I understand it, the wire gold's been worked over pretty good. Like, nobody's pulling out major amounts of wire gold anymore up in those hard rock deposits, according to Rob and a couple of others. Maybe there are folks who are doing great, but they're not sharing their information. And again, uh, as I've learned, uh, there's a market for this fragile wire gold online for collectors and other things like that. So apparently that's where the big money is, the wire gold. What do I know? <laughs> there, is more to, there is more, though, to the gold story. And I'll tell you also what we know, and then I can, I'd like to finish this little episode with what we don't know, what I'm interested and curious about and needs more work. Okay, so let's leave the hills above Liberty, and let's go right down to the main road, U.S. 97, uh, you leave Ellensburg, you're on 97, you go up and over Blewett Pass, you drop down heading towards Wenatchee. Okay. The Liberty is south of Blewett Pass, down low along uh, Williams Creek and along Swalk Creek. Right next to that road, the Liberty Cafe is a landmark if you happen to know that area. Right next to the road, on both sides of the road, there are major gold operations, tons of tunnels. And the tunnels, instead of into the black shale that was up high, now we're down low, and the tunnels are actually in river rock. It's kind of unnerving to go into a gold mine tunnel and have the walls of the tunnel be um, baked potatoes, basically, big cobbles. But the cobbles are so well cemented that there's rarely an opportunity or rarely a, an accident where there's a big cave in. It uh, took me a while to get comfortable with that, but I've since brought student groups in. When Rob says, are you teaching a class? Come up, bring them on out. We'll do, we'll do some prospecting. And, of course, that's a very memorable experience for many of those guys. But we go in there, and, and everybody's kind of um, freaked out that the, the walls of the tunnels are, are river rock, but very well cemented. Okay, so what are we looking for wire gold down there? We are not. We're looking for baked potatoes that are solid gold. <laughs> gold nuggets. You've heard the term placer. Placer means uh, we have gold that has been moved by water and rounded into nuggets of different sizes. Of course, most of the nuggets are quite small, little things that fit into the palm of your hand, for instance. Uh, but occasionally you can find large, like baked potato-sized nuggets of gold, solid gold which was discovered just a few years ago in the Liberty area, the potato patch, as it's known locally. So the, those nuggets of gold that are being regularly found 
as these mines continue to operate. And these are all hobbyists. You know, there's no major industry in the Liberty area. It's all just weekend folks, and in the case of Rob, guys that live there year-round in a trailer or something like that. Those nuggets of gold are always in the bottom couple of feet of a pile of river rocks 50 feet high. So basically, the main river valley of the Liberty area has 50 feet of river rock in the bottom of the valley. 50 feet of it. And the gold nuggets are only in the bottom foot or two of that pile. So you basically have almost 50 feet of river rock overburden that's totally worthless. And you've got to get rid of all those worthless river rocks before you can get down to the potential of finding some placer gold nuggets at the base. So the gold nuggets are basically sitting right on top of the black shale. They're, they're, they're right on top of that bedrock. And sometimes they're down in the nooks and crannies of the cracked surface of the uh, black shale, typically. But underneath all this river rock stuff. So it's a mining operation where you're just using a bobcat now, and you're, you're using a metal detector, and you're trying to go through that pay layer, as, as some of them call it, which is at the very base of the conglomerate, and trying to find these nuggets of gold. And if you're smart, like some of these guys up there, you're trying to think about how a river system works, assuming it's a river system. So let's get into the questions, which is, to me, the most interesting part. I don't have it in my bones to quit my job and start looking for gold full time. It's just not in me. But I'm interested in the geologic puzzles. I don't understand why the fragile wire gold and these huge nuggets are so close to each other. Because the company line is those placer nuggets are basically a bunch of fragile wires that are compacted together. Like you collect a bunch of the fragile wires, you break them free from their calcite prison up high, and you pack them together to make these nuggets of gold. These, these nuggets are solid. I mean, they're, 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 occasionally you'll find a placer gold piece that is kind of half compacted, and you can kind of see the individual wires. But for the most part, you can find these, these nuggets of gold. They're just solid gold all the way through. There's only like a, a mile between <laughs> some of these fragile wires up high and these big nuggets of gold down low. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. There's a, there's a story there that has been undetected. Well, you want more questions? How come there's 50 feet of river rock? That's a lot of river rock in a relatively small drainage. Did it really just come from Blewett Pass? Or is all that river rock not really river rock, but glacial outwash? The Yakima Valley Glacier that we talked about quite a while ago now came down the Yakima River Valley. This is to the west and to the south, actually. But at Swak Prairie, there was a pretty thick amount of ice. And the thought is there's a bunch of meltwater that kind of going up the Swak drainage and dropping those rocks. If that's true, why do we have the gold nuggets at the base of it? Were the gold nuggets dropped there 20 million years ago, 30 million years ago, and then it's just during the Ice Age time that those river rocks came in and dropped on top? I'll add one more wrinkle without being too open-ended about this. 
If we go back far enough in time, the Columbia River and other major rivers in Washington had different paths at different times. The flood basalts were pushing the river here and there, and it's possible to push a river around if it's relatively flat. Was there a major river channel coming through the Liberty area? In other words, is it possible that the placer gold is coming from a much greater distance away than the Liberty area? And then the recent uplift of the Wenatchee Mountains to make Blewett Pass kind of cut off that supply? I'm guessing if you're listening in other countries right now, you've kind of lost interest because these are local questions. But my main point is you've got the Liberty Gold area very close to this campus with both amazing placer nuggets and fragile wire gold, quite rare, in the same place. And I don't understand why they're both there. If they truly are connected to each other and we're making placer from wire with a, with a mile travel distance between the wire and the, and the major nuggets, I don't understand how that works. So, like most things, there's more questions than answers. And if you've been waiting for the age of mineralization and why the gold actually formed where it did, in other words, why did that wire gold show up in the calcite, which showed up in the calcite, excuse me, which showed up in the shale, which showed up next to the feeder dike, that's also a mystery. Uh, the only person who made a public uh, assessment and wrote it up for a PhD thesis was Jacob Margolis back in the 80s. And he came up with an age of 44 million years, which is almost 10 million years after the Tianwei basalt event. But he was using some of the deposits in Wenatchee, which are not far from Liberty as the crow flies, but a much different scene geologically. That's another major question. Are the gold and silver deposits in Wenatchee, literally 15 miles to the east, they must be related somehow to the Liberty mineralization, but nobody's been able to connect the dots between those two places. Hey, man, just as I'm kind of spitballing on this, I'm reminding myself these are a series of quite interesting questions that are pretty close to town. I should get on this. What am I doing talking about other stuff? Why, am I, why, why don't I get more into this again? I kind of forgot about it, to be honest. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to talk about this and remind myself that i got to get that back to the top of my to-do list. I think there's things that can be done. All we need to do is con connect some dots between some geologic studies and maybe get a couple of new bright young women or men uh, to work on the situation locally. Well, geology fans, I think that brings our Liberty Gold episode to a close. There's only one more of these. To finish out our Geology 101 series, and that's Ellensburg Blue Agates coming next time. But in the meantime, if you have some thoughts about what you'd like to hear in this podcast series, assuming you want to hear more, why don't you email me, nick at geology.cwu.edu. If you send me an email with a couple of ideas for what you think would be fun to listen to with this podcast series, you know, I'm a Washington guy, so it's got to be a Pacific Northwest story. 
But uh, I'm debating about what to do after I'm done with these 101 uh, episodes, which are easy for me to do. I just sit in here, close my eyes, and just start talking. And hopefully I can be that, that, that way as well with other topics. But uh, what would sound good to you as a series of episodes coming uh, once we wrap this up? But that's down the road. For this one, we're finishing up. Thank you for listening to this episode. Onward to Ellensburg Blue Agates. Goodbye. <laughs>